Well, friends, as I mentioned before, it was 4th of July this past week, and that is where we celebrate together as American citizens the work of our founding fathers, the work that they did in achieving liberty and justice for all. And it didn't come at small price. It came at great price. And it started with a declaration, a declaration of independence, a bold move declaring them free from the tyranny of a tyrannical and evil king. It was dangerous, and it was costly. And I'm grateful for them, as we all should be. But there is a different kingdom that we are called to be a part of as followers of Jesus. We serve a different king, a king who has a kingdom that he declares is not of this world, even though we are in this world. We live by this king, this king who died to purchase our freedom, who lived a perfect life so that his death would buy the perfect love of God for us, would achieve for us what we are incapable of doing ourselves. And from that place of his life and his death and his resurrection unto eternal life and the power of the Holy Spirit, he launches us forward on mission. And that's what we have been talking about over the course of these last several weeks, a mission that Jesus sent us on in the power of the Holy Spirit, a mission that is quite impossible without the work of the Holy Spirit. Mission Impossible has been our theme, and we've been learning from the book of Acts how it is that God used the Holy Spirit through his early followers to form the church of Jesus Christ, to expand and grow and share and be witnesses to the power of God, to the work of Jesus Christ for generation after generation after generation to fulfill the mission. What's the mission? It's the mission that Jesus gave his disciples, and it actually comes to us in two parts. The first part is in Matthew chapter 28, a very famous passage of Scripture. You've probably heard it, maybe recited it. Some of you may even have it memorized. And for others, this might be the first time. Welcome. We're glad you're here to hear it. Because this is what Jesus told his disciples as he was preparing to depart from them. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's a huge mission, a huge responsibility, but he didn't leave us alone to accomplish it. As his disciples were there waiting in Jerusalem after Jesus' resurrection, as he was preparing to ascend to the Father, he promised that the Holy Spirit would be sent, and he told his disciples to wait there in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit would come. And he gave them a particular reason for that. He says, wait here in Jerusalem until the Spirit is poured out. Because the Holy Spirit, when it comes upon you, you shall receive power, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the power that accomplishes the mission. 
The mission is being those witnesses, being those people who share and make disciples of every nation all around the world, doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no other way for this impossible mission to be accomplished. We need the Holy Spirit to move the mission from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, we've heard that phrase a number of times, and sometimes people will ask, well, Pastor, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, how, what does that mean? How does that mean something for us here in the United States, living right here in White Bear Lake, Minnesota? Well, it kind of means this. The closest approximation you could give is this. When we're talking about Jerusalem, we're talking about the Twin Cities. We're talking about the people who you are right with who are a lot like you. That's Jerusalem. It's the place where you are familiar and where the people are the most familiar to you as well. It's where any mission starts. It starts with your family. It starts with those closest to you, those who you know might be your very next door neighbors. That's Jerusalem. It's right where you are with people who are like you. Now, what is Judea? Well, geographically, Judea was the area that surrounded Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a city within Judea. So Judea is kind of like Minnesota. It's a little stretched out a little bit further. It's people who are nearby, but they're still very much like you. I think if you went pretty much any place within the state of Minnesota, you would find people very similar to those who are sitting in the pews here today, similar to me similar to your neighbors and your friends, maybe a little bit more distant. They might have a little different geography or, or have been born in a slightly different place than you have been. But in general, they are pretty much like you. Well, that was Judea. It was just going a little further outside of your comfort zone, out to greater Minnesota. So what about Samaria? Well, Samaria was that place that was nearby with people who were not like you. That's what Samaria was like. Samaria was like Wisconsin. <laughs> I've been waiting for a while to say that one. It's like Wisconsin, right? Now you see, this is a big deal because when we're talking about Samaria, as you're gonna learn in a little bit, it was a really big deal to mention Samaria because yes, it was nearby. But these people were not like the people who Jesus was talking to first in Jerusalem and Judea. Some of them were Packer fans even, I understand. <laughs> so Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the people who are nearby but are not like you. And then to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth. That's every place else. These are the people who are far away who are not like you. These are people like in California far, far away, not very much like you, but similar. You speak a similar language, at least for many. So you've got the Twin Cities, and then you've got Minnesota, then you've got Wisconsin, and then you've got California. Well, that's kind of what Jesus is saying. Very specifically, he's saying, start this mission right here in Jerusalem. Start it with the people you know. It starts with you, these first disciples of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is poured out on them right there in Jerusalem. And when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them, they begin to share the story. They bear witness to who Jesus is. And they start preaching, Peter especially. I'm just going to call him Pete. Pete starts preaching. 
Average Pete just starts preaching. This fisherman starts preaching to all these people and sharing with them the good news about who Jesus is. And those people look up there and they go, uh, we kind of know these guys. Don't, aren't these the folks who came down from Galilee? We recognize these folks. They're kind of like us. But each of them was hearing them in their own language because within Jerusalem, there were a lot of different people who may have all seemed to be the same, but they spoke a wide variety of languages. Sounds a little bit like the Twin Cities, doesn't it? But each person was able to hear the good news of Jesus Christ in their own language. So Peter and James, Pete and Jim, went around proclaiming this good news. And as they started off proclaiming this good news, things were going well. Thousands were being added every day to this growing church. This group of believers in Jesus Christ were being added to every day, and they were meeting in homes, and they were meeting in the temple squares, and they were meeting in the synagogue, and everything was going great for a while. Until some distinctions started getting made between different groups of people. And it started with these Greek Jews versus these Hebraic Jews. They were all living in the same area, but they didn't have exactly the same culture. So they started kind of bickering back and forth with one another. Even those who were followers of Jesus realized that this bickering was going to be happening. So Peter and James and some of these early disciples said, you know what, we need to take care of these widows especially, and we need to make sure that they're treated fairly. So we're going to raise up seven men. We'll find seven guys, just seven ordinary guys, who can come and help us out. One of them was named Steve. We talked about Steve last week, if you were here. Everyday Steve. Steve, just a follower of Jesus, just somebody picked by the other followers to say, hey, you got a job to do, Steve, is to make sure that the food gets distributed fairly to all the widows in this area. Simple job. Wait tables. Take care of the job that you've been called to do. But while he was doing that, Steve was also out doing what he couldn't help but do, which is to share the good news about Jesus everywhere he went. And the more he did that, the more trouble he started to get into because he started making it very, very clear that while this deep relationship with Jesus was true and was in complete alignment with the Hebrew Scriptures as the Messiah who had come, to those who were there that did not believe this was the Messiah, this was a direct threat. And so eventually a group rose up and arrested Peter, or excuse me, arrested Stephen, took him out, and as Stephen shared the story and accused them of being the ones who killed the Savior, they turned around and stoned him to death. Steve becomes the first witness, the first martyr of the church. And that's where we pick up the story today. We're going to pick up the story with another guy. There was Steve last week. This week we're going to talk about a guy named Phil. Another one of those first seven who was called the wait tables. And we're going to hear some things about Phil. But in order to hear these things about Phil, we've got to set the stage. And I want to set the stage by reading to you from the book of Acts, starting in chapter 8. If you have one of those quest Bibles in front of you, you can follow along with me. You can turn to page 1605 in there, and that's where you will find this story. We're going to read a few verses here, and then we're going to pause, and we're going to read some verses a little bit later. So if you're there in chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, that's where we're going to be reading today right now. So follow along. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen 
and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. They've been in Jerusalem, right? But now the heat is getting turned up. The heat's getting turned up in Jerusalem. Stephen has been martyred and killed by a man named Saul who is leading a whole group of people who want to see these Christians stamped out. Their little sect destroyed. And so that's what they begin to do. Going house to house, looking for these Christians to round them up and have them persecuted or even killed. And it says that they scattered at that point, except for the apostles. The apostles remained there in Jerusalem. Now, that's a little curious. Why did the apostles remain? Well, because the apostles were mostly Hebraic Jews. And the fiercest persecution was happening against the Grecian Jews, the Hellenistic Jews. These guys, these seven, the Magnificent Seven, with Steve and Phil and the others, they were the ones who were the target most especially of Paul's attacks. So they flee. They run away from Jerusalem. And they go to Judea and Samaria. Isn't that interesting? Jerusalem. Now we're getting to Judea and Samaria. What does it take to get the church to move from the place that they are? It took persecution. It took persecution to get the church out of Jerusalem and to get them moving out into these other areas where Jesus had called them to go. So he goes to Judea. And he proclaims the gospel there, Phil does. And then Phil goes and, and declares the gospel in Samaria. He goes all the way to Wisconsin. <laughs> and believe me, this was a challenging, challenging thing to do. It's like showing up at the Packers stadium wearing your Vikings gear. It's dangerous. It's risky. But he did it because he was compelled to do it. Because the good news of Jesus was for everybody. And as he was there, amazing signs and wonders were happening at Phil's hand. And he preached and taught about the Messiah, about Jesus, the true Messiah. And many there came to believe and trust in who Jesus was. Because Phil wasn't in Jerusalem anymore. Because Phil and the other Hellenistic Jews were under persecution. Now, friends, when we talk about persecution today, we sometimes get a little distorted view of what persecution really means. I'm not talking about being persecuted because you don't like the fact that Starbucks doesn't have the right uh, cups out at Christmas time. Okay, it's not persecution, friends. Persecution is closer to a little bit of what I experienced when I took a trip to Southeast Asia. My dear friend, Pastor Tom Lovan, who was from Southeast Asia, brought me on a mission trip there to experience the many places that he had been and where he had shared the gospel in Southeast Asia. Now, you need to know something about Southeast Asia. There are places in Southeast Asia where the gospel is loud freely. 
There are places in Southeast Asia where the gospel is allowed, but it's pretty closely monitored. And there are places in Southeast Asia where it is legally allowed, but in practice is highly, highly persecuted. And we got a chance to see it in all these different places. One of the nights while I was out in Laos, I was out there with another missionary friend, and we were in a farmer's, not a farmer's market, but a marketplace that got set up in the middle of the street. Pretty regularly, there'd be lots of different gifts and things that would be out there, and I got a chance to walk out and explore some of these things in the evening. And as I was walking around, I noticed that there was a gentleman who seemed to kind of be pretty close to us much of the time that we were walking. Not unusual. You've got a lot of people who are kind of working on their way along the same side. And at one point, I reached down and I picked something up, and I, as I picked it up and was holding it, this gentleman swung around with a camera, snapped the picture of me, and took off. And I looked to my friend, and I said, well, that was kind of odd. What do you suppose that was? My friend, who was a little more experienced than I, said, that's the secret police. They're keeping tabs on us because we're Christians and we're foreigners. And they want to make sure that they know exactly where we're going and exactly what we're doing because Christianity is highly regulated in Laos. Now, I can't say that I personally felt persecuted, but I did understand a little bit of what it's like to be in a place that's not free, to be able to celebrate and worship without any concerns of a government coming and doing something to us. That wasn't the experience of my friend Tom many times in Vietnam. He had uncles and others who worked in Vietnam, and so he would get special permission to go into Vietnam and go into some places in northern Vietnam that were far away from most of the big cities where he could bring ministry and bring the love of Jesus. But unfortunately, there's a very, very strict rule in Vietnam, which is no church is to be more than 10 people. And so anytime there's a gathering of more than 10 people, they're at risk. Well, in this particular situation around Christmas time, a whole group that had recently come to follow Jesus was gathering in northern Vietnam. A group of over 5,000 was there. And they were hearing the good news, and they were celebrating Jesus. And so the authorities came and martyred many of them. We don't hear about these stories very often, but there's real persecution. And the gospel continues to go forward in these places. So this is the kind of experience that we're seeing here. It's not just fun and games for Phil. Phil is fleeing for his life. But while he's fleeing for his life, he knows that he is being called by God to share the good news wherever he goes, in Jerusalem and Judea. And that's where the story continues because there's one more step to take, isn't there? He's been in Jerusalem, he's been in Judea, he's been in Samaria, and now we pick up the story in Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. 
Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This was the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared in Azotas and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. What an amazing story. And why is this story in particular captured in Scripture? We hear that Phil was out there in Judea and in Samaria, and we hear on a big, broad picture some of the things he did, but here we have a very specific encounter between Phil and a foreigner. How does he get there? Well, first he listens to the Holy Spirit, doesn't he? An angel appears before Phil. Now, angel means messenger of God. So a messenger of God comes to Phil and tells Phil to go be a messenger of God. It says, you need to go down to the Gaza Road. Now, the Gaza Road is way south and leads very, very south of Jerusalem, leads to Gaza, which is on the shores, but then it continues on all the way down into what is today North Africa. And so that's what Phil does. Phil follows his instructions and says, okay, I'll go on this road and I'll look for whoever it is that you send my way. And as he's walking along the road, a chariot appears, and in that chariot is an Ethiopian eunuch of high standing almost royalty, a high-level official. There couldn't be much more different between Phil and this man than what was experienced in that moment. Phil, simple Phil. Phil, whose job until just a few months before was taking care of the widows. Now here's Phil on this road watching a gentleman of very dark skin riding aboard a chariot Obviously, he comes to find out the story of this gentleman, finding out he is a eunuch. Now, there's different understandings of what that actually means. It may mean that he was not able to father children. It may also mean simply that he was a very high official within this court that took care of the treasury. It could mean both or, or either. So there is Phil meeting this gentleman. And as he's walking along, the spirit tells Phil go up and get close to that trailer. Get close to that chariot. So it starts with Phil getting close and doing what? Listening. That's all he does. He gets close enough to listen to what this gentleman is saying. And after listening for a while, 
he hears that this gentleman is reading out loud from the book of Isaiah. Now, that was very common in that time. It was very common to read out loud. Even if you were just by yourself, you would read out loud. So this Ethiopian eunuch is riding along, reading from the book of Isaiah. That's what Phil hears. So Phil gets a little closer, comes up next to the side of the chariot, maybe walking alongside, seeing this gentleman up above, and what does he do next? He asks a question. So, I hear, I hear what you're reading. Do you understand what you're reading? The gentleman says, no, how am I supposed to understand this unless somebody can teach it to me? I'm not from around here. This gentleman is a foreigner, about as foreign as he could possibly be. He was a God-fearer who went to Jerusalem to worship there, but he would not have been received as a fellow Jew. He was not a proselyte. He was not somebody who had been trained and raised and brought into the Jewish religion. No, he was just a God-fearer and felt that this was the place to go to worship. So he would have been left outside of the temple. He would have not been allowed to enter or get anywhere near that place, especially if he was truly a eunuch. So here he is on the road reading from Isaiah. Phil is there. The Spirit tells Phil, get close, and then get closer. And then he asks a question, and then the eunuch official says, why don't you come on up here? And tell me what it is that I'm reading. And he shares with him the passage that he is reading. And then Phil starts to share the story. Phil starts to fill in the blanks. He starts to share with this gentleman about how this story is tied into the most important story in all of history, the story of Jesus, and how all of it points to Jesus. There are signs happening all throughout the Old Testament all throughout the prophet Isaiah that point directly to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit uses these words and uses this conversation between Phil and this foreigner to fill in the blanks and to allow the Holy Spirit to point this foreigner to Jesus. And it becomes the first documented account in the New Testament of somebody who is completely outside of the community, somebody completely away from the Jewish reality, the Jewish religion, whether Greek or Hebraic. And in this first encounter, God shows that the Holy Spirit can lead you to share with anyone. Anyone. There is nobody outside of God's grace. There is no one who God looks at and says, no, that one is not worthy of being loved by me. That one is too far away to ever possibly be brought close to me. No, through the power of the Holy Spirit, followers of Jesus are compelled to go and share that good news of Jesus with whoever will listen. No matter how different they are, no matter how foreign they are, no matter how unusual they may look or sound or speak or dress, they are the ones we are called to go and speak to, to share the love of Jesus, to show that the love of Jesus and his forgiveness is for everyone, for everyone who will listen, for everyone who will bend an ear, 
Here's Phil fulfilling this job, doing this amazing task to walk alongside. And all of it is the work of the Holy Spirit. Getting close to listen. Getting closer to ask questions. Coming alongside to share in the power of the Holy Spirit God's good news. And then receiving that brother or sister into the kingdom through the joy and gift of baptism. What an amazing story. And what a story we need to start living out again. I don't know how long it's been since there's been an adult baptism here at Community of Grace. But however long it's been, it's been too long. We are back in the times of the first century church again, my friends. And while it is a joy to bring families who have been following Jesus for generations and bring their children into the faith through the waters of holy baptism. There are many, 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 many people in this community who have never been baptized themselves, who have never darkened the door of a church, who know nothing about the faith, who could open up the pages of the Bible and it would mean nothing to them because apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, no one can understand what's written anyway. It's going to take people coming alongside. It's going to take people like you and me being willing to meet people where they are at outside of these doors and trust that the Holy Spirit will give us the words and point us to the people and give us the signs that we need to direct us right to the people who need to hear, right to the folks who need to know the story, right to the dear people of this community who know that life is hard and are looking for answers and they're finding them in all kinds of places other than in the grace and love of Jesus Christ. It's our call, people. It's our call to be an evangelist. And in order for it to work for you or for me or for anybody else, it's going to require complete dependence on the Holy Spirit. 244 years ago, a declaration of independence was made by our founding fathers. But we as followers of Jesus need our declaration of dependence. We need a declaration of dependence that says nobody is doing this alone. None of us can accomplish this alone. We need to say to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, come. I can't do this without you. I won't even know where to start apart from you. I am completely and totally dependent on you to point me where I'm to go, to point out the people that I am to come alongside to give me the ears to hear what they are saying, to give me the questions to ask that will spur conversation, and then to help me share the life-saving story, Jesus, of who you are to a place where their eyes will be opened, their ears will become attuned to you, Jesus. They will be filled with the Holy Spirit and come to faith and trust in you. And if they never have before, come into the waters of holy baptism where God claims them and makes them family. Jesus makes us family, but it's not a closed family, friends. It's a family that has many, many other soon-to-be family members who are not here yet. Some of them look just like you. Some of them are a little different than you. Some of them may feel very odd and strange to talk to because they seem completely outside of you. But the truth is, we are all called to declare our dependence on the Holy Spirit. And we're going to do that today as we come to his table.
But before that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for calling each of us to be ambassadors of your grace, for calling each of us to be messengers of you, to be evangelists, to go and to share the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for me and for each of us and for all of us as a community and for the whole world if they were only put their faith and trust in him. And we know that too is a work of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we can't do this without you and we wouldn't want to try. Apart from you, we are powerless. So come, Spirit, fill us with your grace. Fill us with the words we need. Help us to listen. Help us to ask questions. Help us to share the story with those who are waiting to become part of the family. We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.